0: X Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing NIH experts sharing insights on clinical trial diversity and World Health Day's theme of the interconnectedness between the planet and our health. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. This week's podcast is sponsored by Elego Health Research. Stay tuned to learn more about Elego later in the show. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thanks for coming today all right so i'm going to start us off with a piece about clinical trial diversity and i'm really excited to cover this story on the podcast because i actually had the chance to reach out and get some responses from the national institute of health's national heart lung and blood institute or the nhlbi and i was able to get some responses from a panel of experts through an email interview to get their insights about clinical trial diversity. So, of course, increasing diversity in clinical trials remains a topic of great importance in the clinical trial space. In the U.S., up to 80% of participants in medical research studies are Caucasian. Black, Hispanic, and Native American or Indigenous populations remain significantly underrepresented in clinical trials. So although Black people make up about 13% of the U.S. population, they only constitute 5% of clinical trial participants. And similarly, Hispanic and Latino participants account for roughly 19% of the population in the U.S., but only make up 1% of trial participants. And this is a problem of course, because responses to, to treatments can vary between different racial groups, owing to differences in genetics, physiology, and lifestyle factors. So some of the barriers to participation of minority or socioeconomically disadvantaged groups include a lack of access geographically or location wise, language barriers, um, health literacy, a lack of awareness and knowledge of what clinical trials are and what it means to participate or even how to participate as well as limited communication of research options, cost or insurance concerns, um, cultural differences, religion, as well as a lack of trust in the medical community and drug development uh, process and pharma in general due to discrimination and uh, medical mistrust. So to learn more about some of the challenges and solutions to help foster greater diversity in clinical trials, I posed a couple of questions to the experts at NHLBI and they shared some of their responses, which I'm going to share here um, in this podcast. So one of the questions that I asked was, what are the biggest challenges in recruiting diverse patient populations in clinical trials? Um, And this includes participants from minority and socioeconomically disadvantaged groups. So the NHLBI experts responded saying that the U.S.'s history of medical maltreatment and discrimination against marginalized and disadvantaged groups has eroded trust in clinical trials among these communities. And that also reflects in a lack of representation within the medical profession itself. And so people want to ultimately see... um, People like themselves um, in healthcare and in medicine, and they want to be cared for people that they trust and representation aids in this development, they said. In addition to that, some socioeconomically disadvantaged communities may also experience greater obstacles when trying to access clinical trials, such as location and financial resources. You know, I then asked, um, speaking about medical mistrust, especially among Black and Indigenous uh, communities, as well as Hispanic communities in the U.S., um, I asked the the experts uh, what some effective approaches or strategies um, would help foster the inclusion of um, greater participation of such populations and of such groups. So they said that having policies in place to support the inclusion of underrepresented groups in clinical trials is important to help ensure research findings can be generalizable to the entire population, of course. And the NIH actually i learned from them that the NIH requires the inclusion of women and minority groups in all NIH funded clinical research in a way that is relevant and appropriate to the scientific question under investigation. In addition to that, uh, they told me that NIH-funded clinical trials must be designed to provide information about differences um, by gender, race, and or ethnicity. I also asked about some of the initiatives and efforts that the NHLBI may be uh, engaged in to help investigators and trial sponsors increase trial diversity. And so the NHLBI team of experts um, relayed some information to me about some of their initiatives, and they talked about teaming up with the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, or the NIMHD, on Community Engagement Alliance Against COVID-19 Disparities, or SEAL. And this is an initiative that partners with researchers, vaccine manufacturers, as well as national and local organizations and leaders To help ensure clinical trials for COVID-19 vaccines and therapies include Black, Latino, and American Indian participants, uh, which are groups that are traditionally underrepresented in scientific studies. So, the way that SEAL accomplishes and achieves this is by working with trusted uh, messengers, and these are often local leaders or physicians, and they work together to develop and share information about vaccines and treatments as they become available. So, it was really great to learn about um, this community engagement based initiative. And they told me, um, you know, in their response, They said that their experiences with uh, SEAL taught them that partnering with trusted leaders at the local level is key to combating medical mistrust. Um, And research shows that people are more likely to listen to people that they know. And so it becomes really important to engage with uh, local leaders who can enact change in their communities through community outreach. And they said that they must continue to build and foster relationships with communities um, in these kinds of ways through these kinds of initiatives over time and um, although there are still many challenges in recruiting diverse patient populations in clinical trials um, i kind of wanted to know what changes we have seen in recent years and how far we've we've come because uh, things have been improving um, despite uh, remaining challenges. So the NHLBI uh, experts told me that uh, there has been a more concerted push to prioritize patient diversity in clinical trials. So for example, they said that at the halfway point of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine trials, only 10% of enrollees were people of color. And with the help of SEAL, as well as the COVID-19 Prevention Network, Moderna increased that representation of people of color to 37%. And of course, that was critical in understanding the effectiveness of the vaccines for all. And um, as to my knowledge, I don't think there were any significant differences between uh, different Uh, racial groups um, in terms of responses to the vaccines but that information is definitely important to have because potentially there could have been differences. Um, And talking more about the COVID-19 vaccine trials, um, I was, uh, I came across some information on uh, the John Hopkins uh, website and pertaining to the demographics of the COVID-19 vaccine trials and um, You know, this was actually a great example of how people of color were uh, more greatly represented than they traditionally are in clinical trials. And this is, of course, because COVID-19 is affecting everyone. So it was important to make sure that clinical trials, um, you know, the participants in clinical trials reflected that. So according to Dr. Sharita Golden, who is the vice president and chief diversity officer at Johns Hopkins Medicine... um, she said that, you know, when Pfizer tested their COVID-19 vaccine, uh, 10% of their study participants were Black or African American people. And that's also what the NHLBI uh, told, um, explained as well. But they were able to increase that. Also, encouragingly, Hispanic as and Latino people accounted for 26% of the study's participants. Um, and again, I, I think I mentioned earlier that they usually only account for 1% of participants in clinical trials. So that was also uh, quite encouraging. Um, In addition, you know, they also made the effort in in these trials to have um, inclusion of other minority groups, including uh, women, as well as people with chronic health conditions as well. And also globally, um, you know, these trials were quite a success in terms of um, being able to recruit minority um, populations. So globally, the Pfizer vaccine trials and the Moderna vaccine trials also had roughly, you know, 9.8 to 10 percent of participants being black. So these are just, this is just a great example of how, you know, initiatives um, like the one, you um, Created by the NHLBI as well, you know, and the vaccine trials have really show that if um, the leadership and the motivation is there that we can definitely really strive and achieve greater clinical trial um, diversity so um, really the success of the trials shows that the right type of engagement and education can help mobilize people from minority groups to ensure they are fairly and appropriately represented in clinical studies just wanted to get your thoughts on this um, information and also about you know the insights that um, uh, we were able to get from the nhlbi Yeah,
2: well, I actually didn't know this, but apparently in 1993, what happened was that, uh, you know, the NIH noticed that in many clinical trials, you know, most of the study participants were actually white males. And this left a lot of unanswered questions about okay, well, what about the safety and efficacy of treatments in women and, Mm -hmm. and children and other minorities, of course. So in 1993, the NIH adopted a policy, mandating all federal grants for clinical research to include women and minorities. Yeah. And so this has been an effort that, you know, is going on for almost 30 years now to yeah. just inc- increase diversity in clinical trials. And so it is a very important effort. And um, to follow up with that, in 2014, the FDA launched a website called drug trials snapshots. And the purpose of that is just to inform the public with information about the demographic composition of the data that's collected from clinical trials. Um, But I just wanted to ask you, so when, like, for example, the NIH seal um, effort, right, for the COVID-19 vaccines, and they say, like, the best way is to engage with community leaders, like, who are those people, <laughs> you know, because people mm-hmm. um, I was looking at the website and I, I found like they could really be anyone like they could be yeah. um, heads of religious groups or just like community park leaders or, you know, mm-hmm. any kind of people in the community that, you know, their main role is to engage with people on a face to face almost on a daily basis. But do you guys have any other opinions like who would be the community
1: leaders you would churn to? Or your family would turn to. That's a great question. Um, Sydney, I don't know if you have any insight into that. But definitely like the people that you mentioned, um, Vera, you know, they could be anyone from religious leaders to, you know um park leaders but um, i think within that mix it's also really important to have medical professionals there as well because uh, they're the ones who can really uh, relay that scientific and medical information and really explain what clinical trials are and the importance of participating in them so i think um, within that fold you definitely need to have trusted medical professionals that um you know are able to engage with with people from that specific community. And I think, you know, time and time again, it always comes up that people will really be able to um, look towards people that are of their community that look like them that have the same experiences as them. And so those are the kinds of trusted leaders um, that really need to be at the helm of you know, trying to really do that kind of outreach for clinical trials. But definitely, you know, other community leaders as well. I mean, everyone has a role to play. Um, and um, whoever is trusted, I think that's where we need to really gain that trust because of the historic medical mistrust in U.S. healthcare systems. And that's um, really, as the I said, eroded trust in the medical community. Sydney, I don't know your thoughts, like if you were to, you know, who do you think those trusted leaders should be? Well, um, on a more selfish level, I think at the end
3: of the day, mm-hmm. you have to be the one to decide mm-hmm. yourself, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, whether whether yeah. you um, are comfortable participating. But of course, um, even sometimes your own family and your own friend group, um, those are people I would trust. Um, and you know, if, if they are leaders in the community or religious leaders, I would even trust them more if they had experience participating as well in clinical trials. Mm, that's true. Um but as to what Vera mentioned um, about the snapshot, um, I think it's that's a really great uh, sort of transparency move because it's one thing to you know actually include people in clinical trials who historically had not been, but it's another thing to actually show that you have been and. You know, that is another way to build trust and, you know, with communities just to show that, oh, okay there are people like me who have participated Mm -hmm. in this. And so therefore, I feel more comfortable doing that. So I think that was a great move in 2014
1: yeah absolutely and i think you know some of these initiatives like you know the fda snapshot as well as the na nih's commitment to having uh, minority groups and women represented um you know i mentioned that also vera mentioned that as well i think you know those initiatives are so important and perhaps we don't hear too much about them and maybe um you know people that could be part of that community outreach and those outreach programs to inform people of these programs and initiatives that um, have been in place for many years now and like you said sydney really important to also highlight the experience of other people in their community who people in their community who may have gone through the clinical trial process i think that's a really great point as well so i think it's just you know collaboration is key here and just um, listening to everyone's voices and including everyone's voices to to really um, help spur greater diversity in trials so important now let's take a break to hear more about our sponsor this week eligo health research
0: this week Aisha spoke with eligo health research to learn more about how the company is driving innovations and improvements in clinical trials
1: how does ELEGO foster clinical research innovations to help modernize clinical trials?
4: As the ultimate healthcare-enabling research organization, it is ELEGO's mission to provide everyone with easy access to clinical research's care. To accomplish this mission, foster innovation and modernize clinical trials, we maintain the integrity of the trusted patient and healthcare physician relationship, build local healthcare communities, and leverage electronic health records.
1: How is ELIGO committed to ensuring diversity in clinical trial enrollment?
4: ELIGO is ensuring diversity in clinical trial enrollment by working to get community practices involved in clinical research. At the site selection stage of a study, we use unique research agreements and supportive platforms to characterize patient populations at each individual research site, ensuring availability of qualified sites in diverse areas for a given study. ELIGO is also constantly engaging with advocacy and support groups.
1: And how does Eligo increase clinical trial access?
4: We bring more patients' clinical research as a care option by maintaining the integrity of the trusted patient-physician relationship and leveraging electronic health records. Our patient network, offering direct access to diverse known patients through HIPAA-compliant identified EHR data, allows sponsors to quickly find and enroll patients who might not otherwise participate in research. We also work closely with community practices to establish them as clinical research sites.
1: All right, so let's talk about our next story and that relates to World Health Day 2022 and World Health Day is celebrated every year on April the 7th to mark the anniversary of the founding of the World Health Organization. Also, this is a day to raise awareness about global health and pressing health issues affecting people around the world. So the theme of World Health Day 2022 is Our Planet, Our Health, and this theme draws attention to the important links between the environment and human health. Environmental issues like the climate crisis, poor air quality, and a lack of safe, clean water are pressing global issues that have a direct impact on human health. And this is why protecting and safeguarding the planet is imperative to fostering Better human health. So the WHO says that it estimates that more than 13 million deaths globally each year are attributable due to avoidable environmental causes. And this includes the climate crisis, which the Global Health Agency says is the single biggest health threat facing humanity. Now, when we look at uh, access to safe water, according to the global nonprofit organization Water.org, 771 million people, or 1 in 10 individuals, do not have access to safe water to drink. And 1.7 billion people, which is 1 in 4, don't have access to safe sanitation. Now, if we turn to pollution and poor air quality, that is also a significant problem that is just worsening all around the world. And um, in the lead up to World Health Day this week, uh, the WHO released data uh, showing that 99% of the world's population is breathing poor quality air. And this is up from 90% four years ago. So this shows that the majority of us, billions of people worldwide, are being exposed to poor air quality. And among the countries that are, you know, sort of um, really significantly impacted include India, which is home to nine of the world's 10 cities with the worst air pollution caused by particulate matter. So there are two types of particulate matter, PM2.5 and pm 10 and the 2.5 and 10 refer to the diameter of um, these inhalable small particles so PM 2.5 refers to fine inhalable particles that are 2.5 micrometers in diameter or less and PM 10 is made up of particles um, that are 10 micrometers in um, in diameter or less and particulate matter is made up of particles of solids or liquids that are suspended in the air and these particles may include dust dirt smoke soot as well as drops of liquid And particulate matter, especially PM2.5, so the very tiny uh, particles, are capable of penetrating deep into the lungs and entering the bloodstream, which can cause cardiovascular uh, problems, uh, stroke, as well as respiratory issues, according to the WHO. And there is also emerging evidence that particulate matter impacts other organs and can cause other diseases as well. Um, Other the PM10, which is the larger, but it's still also a very harmful pollutant. Also, um, the top 10 list of sort of the most unclean places with high PM10 levels include places like Iran, Iraq, uh, Pakistan, South Africa, as well as Saudi Arabia. And both PM2.5 and PM10 mostly come from the burning of fossil fuels and cars as well as industries, but also from farming and desert lands. Um, We don't normally think about it, I, I don't think at least, but fine sand or mineral dust from deserts is a significant source of air pollutant or air pollution. And uh, the sands were classified as PM10 particulates and contain minerals like silicon, aluminum, calcium, and iron particles. So recently, dust from the Sahara Desert, which is the largest hot desert in the world, traveled in the form of a dust storm that blanketed parts of Europe last month, and that caused the skies to turn orange from the pollution that was in the air. So the WHO data also showed that over 6,000 cities in 117 countries are now monitoring air quality. But despite that, people in those countries are still breathing uh, very unhealthy levels of this fine particulate matter, as well as nitrogen dioxide. And people in low- and middle-income countries are suffering the highest exposures. Uh, So the findings from this air quality report have led the WHO to highlight the importance of curbing fossil fuel use and take other measures to reduce air pollution levels. Now, according to our, uh, I did a little bit, you know, more, I did a bit more research into you know, air pollution, and there were a couple of reports out last year as well about how poor our air quality is becoming. So according to our world and data, air pollution is one of the leading factors for death from causes including heart disease, stroke, lower respiratory infections, lung cancer, diabetes, as well as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And in its Global Burden of Disease Study in 2019, The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation found that air pollution, which is a combination of ozone and outdoor and indoor particulate matter, ranked third after high blood pressure and smoking as a leading cause of death. And it was directly linked to about 6.67 million deaths that year. To address the significant increases in polluted air, the WHO actually updated its guidelines on air pollution limits in September of last year, so in 2021. And this was the major update uh, to the recommendations in almost 16 years. Now, the new guidelines outline significantly lower daily and annual levels of exposure to six different pollutants from sources, including cars and power stations. And these six pollutants are are carbon monoxide, lead, nitrogen oxides, ground-level ozone, as well as uh, particulate matter and sulfur oxides. So the WHO's air quality database introduced for the first time last year ground measurements of annual mean concentrations of nitrogen dioxide, uh, which is a common urban pollutant and precursor of particulate matter and ozone. And under the new WHO guidance, the annual limit on exposure to PM2.5 was reduced by 50%, and annual exposure to nitrogen dioxide, um, which is mainly um, released from diesel vehicles, was slashed by 75%. And these more stringent limits stemmed from greater research on the health impacts of even low levels of pollution, um, according to the WHO. So these, you know, the WHO's air quality guidance isn't legally binding, uh, it says, but it can definitely influence the decisions of governments and world leaders. Um, And according to the WHO, air pollution is currently the world's greatest environmental threat to health, resulting in 7 million premature deaths a year, although estimates are even higher. Some estimates are even higher. And so on World Health Day 2022, the WHO says it will focus global attention on urgent actions needed to keep humans and the planet healthy and foster a movement to create societies focused on well-being. So I just wanted to get your thoughts. Are you surprised or perhaps not surprised by the very, you know, significant findings of um, this report that was released by the WHO and? You know, on World Health Day, what are some of the things that you think about when it comes to, you know, the links between a healthy planet and human health? Well, I, I definitely, like,
2: I was not surprised about the statistics from air pollution, but that's just because when I was in graduate school, you know, I was in the environmental chemistry division mm. and half of the chemists there were like atmospheric chemists who were studying these things. And so I went really to a lot really, of yeah. presentations about <laughs> these kind of issues and, and their like recent, you know, air monitoring campaigns were really cool to hear about. So I was kind of exposed to this for five years in graduate school, um, heard about it on a monthly basis so <laughs> so nothing surprising yeah it, it's it's a bit scary like i know yeah. um i think i had a friend from graduate school who was he said he was from one of the most um he was from a city in china i forget which one but he said that the air pollution there is so bad if you wear a mask like it will be dirty by the end of the day yeah
1: i forgot to mention i don't know in that list i think china was definitely there as well um, and that's that's crazy to, to think about. And I think, you know, we we hear about this a lot, but I think, you know, like these kinds of statistics really paint a grim picture. And I think they're really necessary for them to be put out um, to the public to, to, to really, you know, raise awareness. And I think, you know, this data that just released, you know, right on the heels of World Health Day, it's really important to help raise that awareness. I, I also want to ask, though, is... You know, there's a lot of criticism in terms of, okay, well, you know, who should the greater onus be on in terms of reducing our, you know, our carbon emissions and improving air quality because, you know the burden is always like on the individual kind of like, we need to do our part, which is fine. But then you have the bigger industries and they're always, you know, under attack as well. So it's kind of like a battle between like, you know, the individual versus the larger corporations. How do we manage that? And who, who do you think like, I mean, we're all responsible, but um, and then you have the governments as well. So I, I feel like there is a disconnect between all of these groups
3: yeah that's a great question because you know as individuals if you know if car- if corporations continue to provide us with products we are going to continue mm. to buy them and of course we can make more sustainable choices than we than we currently are but what it comes down to is always economics and finances yeah. so i believe the greater burden would be on uh you know major corporations um and governments to mandate uh you know how much they are able to pollute but on an individual basis of course it's going to require quite a lifestyle shift um yeah no it's it's kind of like it's such a conundrum i don't even know how to answer that question like because as an individual, you f- you feel a bit powerless and you feel like, oh, what can I do really? Like, yeah. Is this little um, thing
1: that I'm doing right. really going to make a difference in the bigger yeah. scheme of things? Yeah. yeah. Right.
3: Like is, is using only reusable bags and water bottles the only thing I can do? Because right. it kind of feels like that. And then yeah. we don't even know if that's any better for the environment at the end right. of the day. So yeah, this is just an ongoing thing. I think we need to be thinking about it more than just once a year, because mm-hmm. um, you know, like I, re- I rarely think about it either. Like it's 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 my fault too. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of questions need to be answered and a lot of action needs to be taken before I think we're gonna see any drastic reduction in pollutants. And I was also surprised by the the sand um, statistic that you mentioned. Yeah. That d- I had no idea dust about. Or and dust. That, yeah. Yeah. And that feels like something that, you know, I don't think we can, can do anything by. about. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. you lay down tarps and you prevent the sand from going all over the place. <laughs> like that doesn't seem like we can do that. But I think that's like That would happen naturally i i think Mm -hmm. um so yeah we i don't think we can do anything about that
1: yeah i wonder though if you know our changing climate has anything to do with that weather patterns wind Mm -hmm. patterns you know so those things may also be impacting sort of these dust storms that are coming out of deserts halfway around the world and impacting you know um places that are seemingly far away from from that source and i think that really goes to show how globally interconnected everything really is because it's kind of like okay well if you know countries out there are so polluted it's not going to affect us or if we're you know in i don't know in north america or in europe where things are are better than lower income countries but i mean you have these deserts these dust storms and i think i was watching like um a documentary series called connected and they were talking about this as well like the desert dust storms and i was like oh wow i was surprised that that's a significant source of pollution but yeah you're right in terms of just like taking the little steps every day as individuals we try but we don't know what that translates into like impact wise and i think maybe once we start seeing more research and data on let's say the impacts of our um, sort of individual efforts. I think that's also going to help uh, motivate people to do more as well. Um, and of course, corporations—they they have a big role to play. And I think increasingly we are seeing a bit more responsibility and action on their on their part. I think you know, Sydney, you you write about a lot of food. Um, companies and industries that are trying to be more sustainable that's a part and package of what they're trying to do as well as we're seeing in pharma as well like you know I think I'm talked about Bayer and um, other companies trying to go green with their packaging and being more sustainable and environmentally conscious throughout their manufacturing processes so there definitely you know there are steps being taken but um, just the The rate at which we're seeing um, things change in terms of pollution climate change that's very very scary but um, hopefully we are heading (laughs) just identifying the problem is is obviously the first step and um, like you said it's and we can't just celebrate or raise awareness on one day it has to be you know a continuous effort Okay, so that's the end of this episode of the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X-Talks Life Science
0: Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com.